It is such an honor and pleasure to be here this morning with you. Now, that's what speakers are supposed to say, right? Well, maybe you can appreciate my sincerity when I, I tell you that if you are relatively new to our church family, my wife and I have been attending here uh, for a little over three years since we retired. But this last year, we've been pretty much absent uh, a year ago, this last month, uh, in July, the conference asked us to fill uh, the empty pulpit in Saginaw, and so we did that for six months, and then, unexpectedly, uh, the pastor left at West Branch, one of the churches I used to pastor 20 years ago, and so they moved me over there, and we were there for five months. So in the last conference year, uh, we were gone 11 months out of the 12, so come June... Barbara and I were really looking forward to being back home in our, our home church. And I was even honored because uh, on June 9th, I was supposed to preach. And then three days before that, I ended up in the hospital with some heart problems. They took out three blockages and put some stints in. And uh, Pastor Acton filled in at the last minute, and I very much appreciate that. And uh, I felt a little disappointed. I said, oh, that, it's always fun preaching with your home church. And then two weeks ago, Pastor Glenn surprised me, called me up, and he said, uh, I'm going to be out of town. Can you fill in? Uh, and I said, oh, love to. Thank you. And so I really uh, started looking forward to this. And then last weekend, I ended up in the hospital again for four days, this time with acute diverticulitis. Sick as a dog, uh, got out Sunday afternoon at 1 o'clock. By 10 o'clock that night, I was back in emergency with reaction to the medications and got out at uh, 5.30 Monday morning. Well, I have to confess, at that time, at 5.30 Monday morning, I was not too sure I would be here this morning <laughs> preaching to you. But uh, God is good, and uh, we're still struggling with some of the side effects of some of the medications and that, but... Uh, we're here, and as we used to say as kids when we play hide-and-seek, here I come, ready or not. <laughs> Do you ever wonder why? Why is it that sometimes you remember, it's almost as if you can't forget some of the smallest, sometimes even silly or inconsequential things, and they just stay with you forever and ever, and then... Sometimes the really important things, like maybe your phone number or how to get home or something like that, you can't hardly remember it. Well, for instance, I have not the slightest idea why it is that I recall when I was in either second or third grade, when the teacher said to get out our geography books, those were the big heavy ones. I'm not sure if they even teach geography today anymore. But the big heavy geography book, and our lesson that day, I opened up, and it was a picture. And it absolutely fascinated me. It was a picture of this giant sequoia redwood tree somewhere out in California. And it was so huge, they had actually made a tunnel through it. And cars were driving through it. Yeah, I'm old enough. The cars were in the early 50s. And uh, I was just fascinated by that. Never forgot it. Then lo and behold, 
in the late 1990s, in fact, I think it was 1999, I was reading my copy of the USA Today newspaper in one of the back sections, and I turned the page, and there it was. That same picture, that same tree. And then right next to it, they had a second picture of that same tree toppled totally. And it didn't snap off where they had made the tunnel to. It was roots and all. And uh, the picture showed the limbs and leaves at the top were still nice and green and alive. And, of course, you had to wonder, what happened? And so I, with real interest, read the article. And in the article, it said that they discovered that when they made the tunnel through the tree, that it didn't immediately kill it, but it irreparably damaged the root system. So much so that here, 50 years later, it wasn't in a great gale, it wasn't a tornado, but as the article said, really almost a gentle breeze that that huge old tree toppled, roots and all. Now, why do I share that with you? For this reason. Because humans are the same as trees in the sense that in the storms of life, what's going to keep you upright depends on your root system. How healthy are your roots, your spiritual roots? Furthermore, I'd like to remind all of us that the teachings and truths of both the Old and New Testaments are what make up our spiritual root system. I was so delighted when Pastor Glenn was first appointed here and he began his series of messages. I think he called it the Adult Vacation Bible School. Did you notice there were biblical accounts from the Old Testament? Not just stories for entertainment's sake, but stories that told a tremendously important truth And I would like this morning to just kind of build upon that and share with you a spiritual truth. I call it almost a virtual taproot. In this case, it comes from the little book of Ezra, chapters 1 and chapter 2. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapters. It's not going to be on the the screen. If you have your Bibles... uh, I encourage you to turn it if you want to use one of the Bibles in the uh, pews. It's page number 461. Or if you have the techie stuff, you can get it there. But just kind of leave it on your lap this morning. Now, in order to really have this spiritual truth grab you, so to speak, in the way that I believe God intends this morning... You need to understand some background. Background can really make a difference. It's a little bit like in the first service. I told them that in my second church when I was pastoring in uh, Adrian, Michigan, we had a couple move from Ohio and a nice family and uh, husband and wife and two children, teenagers, and they became part of our youth group. And Joanne eventually ended up playing our organ But it wasn't until they'd been there a couple years that I understood something that I never, up to that point, understood. At that point, Barbara and I had two 
sons, but we had a miscarriage, lost our third child. It was then that Joanne came and in private shared with us that she had had five miscarriages before she was ever able to carry a child full term. And so just like any other parents, obviously they love their two children, but you have to know that they had to have a special appreciation, special joy to the Lord after having five miscarriages and wondering, will we ever be able to have children? And so just understanding that little bit of background gives a a whole new feel to the reality of what you're dealing with. And so let me share very briefly with you some background so that you can understand this spiritual truth about the sovereignty of God. As I like to entitle the message, God's sovereignty is our security. In Genesis chapter 12, God established a relational covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He said to Abraham, I'm going to take you from here and I'm going to place you over here. Called it the promised land. Now, did God keep his promise? Yes. Abraham made it to the promised land, he and Sarah. But they really didn't stay there all that long because if you read your Old Testament, you know that due to a famine, they ended up in Egypt where they eventually died. And then their descendants ended up being slaves for 400 years. Now, during that time, doesn't it just make sense that the people had to have wondered about God's promise? Would they ever see the promised land again? I'm so hard. It was bad. But as we know, God finally delivered the Israelites to his servant Moses. That's your book of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 19, God made another covenant with Israel. And this time, he just kind of built on the one he made with Abraham. And he told the children of Israel, the Jewish people, that of all the nations, they would be his special ones. That they would be uh, his special treasure. Now, there was a condition if they would only remain obedient to him. If not, there would be consequences. And as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes you have to say, oh my goodness, don't they ever learn? Because they seem to make the same mistake again and again. But later on, a couple hundred years later, the same covenant that God had uh, announced through Moses, he renewed it and added to it in the time of King David. But at that point, everything seemed to be going great. And one of the sad facts of history is that when things seem to be going great, we tend to forget God, amen? That uh, we don't really hang tight with him like we should. And sure enough, it wasn't long before the Israelites again grievously sinned by chasing after other gods. And so hard times came. In this case, that nation of Israel, which at that point in history was the greatest and most powerful and richest nation in the whole world, 
it finally succumbed to the point that the nation split into two. Now, the northern kingdom was made up of 10 of the 12 tribes. And they were the first ones who really forgot God and ran after other gods and things like that. And so God allowed them to fall to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The smaller nation, the one that held true to God a little bit longer, the southern kingdom, was the kingdom of Judah, named because it was made up of two tribes. The big one, Judah, the little bitty one, Benjamin. But they only hung in there for about 135 years. So in 587 B.C., the southern kingdom fell. In this case, they fell to the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's here. I want you to stop. Let's assess the situation. Better yet, if somehow in your mind, you can somehow put yourself back there and be one of them. And then look around you and assess the situation. Here were the so-called facts. Judah's leaders were all killed. The magnificent temple that was built under uh, King Solomon, the pride of their nation, it was burned to the ground and literally was ashes and rubble. Kind of like we see pictures on TV after, say, a tornado, and you look and you see the devastation and you're just almost numb. That's, that's kind of was the picture. And then the best and brightest citizens of Judah were deported as prisoners of war. And they stayed there during a period which historians refer to as the exile. Now, needless to say, things were bad. <laughs> they were worse than bad. Not only to the Jews who all this was happening to, but to any observer. It appeared to one and all that the glorious rise and reign of Israel, God's holy nation, his special treasure, it appeared that it had finally come to a very ignoble end. Everything seemed to be lost. Everything laid in ruins. No doubt the people said with disdain, what else can happen to us? It's here that we pick up the book of Ezra, and in particular these first two chapters. So keep in mind the mindset of the people. They weren't just discouraged. They lived in absolute despair and despondency, a people seemingly with no hope. And it's here that God's sovereignty begins to shine in a way that we realize why people say, if they really know God, God's a difference maker. They were so discouraged, so despondent, so hopeless. In spite of the fact, I want to point this out, in spite of the fact that God had given them some signs of hope. They just weren't seeing it and they weren't listening. Earlier, years earlier, God had spoken to the prophet Jeremiah and he had predicted the downfall of Babylon, 
But he said to them, when it happens, hang in there, because 70 years later, the nation of Israel or Judah will be restored. That's what he promised them. But it just seemed like hollow words. And sometimes when we're really up against it, if we're honest, sometimes we, we think of God and we think of his promises and in our humanity it feels pretty hollow. Not only did they have the words of Jeremiah, but even before Jeremiah, there was the prophet Isaiah. And he went so far as to actually name Cyrus who hadn't even been born yet. He wasn't even yet the gleam in his daddy's eye. And yet, God spoke to Jeremiah, excuse me, through Isaiah and said that this man would be born, he would be named Cyrus, he would be king, and God said he would use him as a tool for accomplishing the restoration of Israel. But once again, from a human viewpoint, it sure didn't look like it. Looked very unlikely. Now, let's, let's understand a little bit about this guy, Cyrus. He was just like Pharaoh, who hundreds of years earlier could care less, in fact, detested the God of Israel. And yet, did not God, through Moses, get Pharaoh to the point that Pharaoh released the children of Israel from their slavery and to go to the promised land? God worked through an ungodly leader. Likewise here, Cyrus was an ungodly leader, and yet God was going to use him for his own divine purposes. Likely? Of course not. But folks, do you realize God can do that? Because God is sovereign. If you don't like the word sovereign, think of it this way. God calls the shots. I don't care what the circumstances are like, whether it's national or if it's in your personal life. I don't care how dismal, how impossible. It doesn't throw God. God's sovereign. He can do things like this. Now, if you still got your Bibles open, or if not, actually on the back of your bulletin, uh, uh, we have the verse. Oh, you actually, boy, you are good. You got it. We didn't have it on the screen the first time. Uh, thank you. Um, look what it says in Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Now, the part that I hope jumps out at you is that phrase, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus. That was God, the sovereign God, working through an ungodly person, just like him can work through any circumstance to accomplish his purpose now in verse 2 we're not going to read it but if you glance your eyes down there you'll see 
that Cyrus, because God moved his heart, Cyrus did some things that, to use the vernacular today, would blow your mind. Totally contrary to what you would expect. What did he do? Well, the first thing, Cyrus said in his proclamation to the Jewish captives, he said, hey, any of you who have a desire to return to your old homeland, you're free to go. Now, how likely do you think that is? But God didn't stop there. By moving Cyrus's heart, Cyrus not only allowed any who want to return back to Israel to return freely, he returned the article stolen by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier. And that was no small deal. In fact, if you read the rest of chapter 1, you'll find out that they numbered 5,400 articles of gold and silver. How likely do you think it is that a foreign king is going to give his money and his treasures to somebody else? It'd be like the IRS putting out a proclamation that, hey, folks, we are in such a good, loving, warm mood today. We're going to cancel all income tax for this year. In fact, we're going to send you each a bonus for $5,000. Don't believe them when they say it's in the mail. And I think that God... Because he loves exclamation marks. Even went so far as by moving the heart of Cyrus. To cause Cyrus to declare that he would solicit funds. To help rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. That would be like Hezbollah giving a million dollars to the Jewish relief fund. Now, what are the odds of these things happening? Take them to Wall Street and see how well you do. Worse yet, you take them to Las Vegas, I can guarantee you, you're going to come home in your skivvies and socks. These things don't just happen. You're right, they don't just happen. Unless a sovereign God decides that's the way it's going to be. And you look at your circumstances I look at mine, and in our humanity, we say it's not going to work. It's not going to come out well. Woe is me. Wait a minute. Is there a sovereign God or isn't there? Do you love and serve him or don't you? Does he care about you or doesn't he? Now, look at Cyrus. Make no mistake. He didn't become some recent convert and just said, oh, I want to do all I can for God that I can't. No. Everything Cyrus did, he did for his selfish self. He really didn't give one rip about the Jews. But he was, just like all the other pagan kings back then, He believed in a multiplicity of gods. And the whole idea was, if there's all these powerful gods out there, the more of them you can get on your side, the better off you are. And so that's exactly why he did it. 
But what was the reality? See, he thought he was doing it for his own selfish gain. But in reality, Cyrus merely played into the hands of an almighty sovereign God. Do you see it? When Jerusalem laid in ruins, while the Jews languished in exile, you can be certain that the people had to have wondered, where is God? Does God even care? If God is truly sovereign, why doesn't he do something? Pretty current questions also, right? Now, in reality, was or wasn't God still in charge, still in control? Of course he was. You see, he simply worked everything out just like he said he would. But he did it according to his plan, his way, and his timing. One of the most powerful and helpful quotes... I've ever come by in my life is a quote by Dr. David Siemens in his book, Putting Away Childish Things. I don't know. Did you get that one too? Oh boy, she is good. Look at this. He writes, although God is certainly not the author of everything that happens, he is the master of everything. And will use it to work out his purposes in history. Now let me ask you. Are God's purposes good or bad? They're good, aren't they not? Okay, if he's going to work out his purposes. It means that everything that happens. Good, bad, in between. He is not the author of everything. Especially, obviously, the evil. Just think of the things that are happening in the world today. Awful. But he is the master of everything. Folks, God was not the author of the terrorist attack of September 11th. I remember that morning very well. We pastors were in Clio and New Covenant Church and having a seminar. And then somehow word leaked out and the seminar stopped and we all went to a back room and Roger Allen got the TVs all queued in and we watched with horror just like you did as those towers were struck in a flame and then crumbled. God was not the author of the terrorist attack of September 11th, or for that matter, the July 4th attack of this year at the Boston Marathon. But listen, though he was not the author, he still is the master. He did not lose control. He is still in charge. He is still sovereign. He is still calling the shots. But what I hope is sinking in is that just as those Jews did 2,600 years ago, when they looked around and they saw some awful things and everything looked like it was lost, and they were saying, where is God we, are we not tempted to do the same thing when things go wrong? When we hear the 
daily stream of bad news. Sometimes it's worldwide, sometimes nationalized, sometimes it's your private world caving in. Does God make a difference or doesn't he in our life? I declare to you this morning that instead of succumbing to the fear that's so prevalent in our land today, as Christians, we must stand firm in our faith in a God who's sovereign, who's in control, always has been, always will be, and we're going to be okay. Don't ask me how things will play out. I don't know. I just know the outcome. You see, we must allow God, who is the master of everything, to use in his wisdom even evil terrorist attacks, natural disasters, recessions, family or personal crisis, whatever it may be, We must allow him to work out his purposes according to his divine plan. I don't know if you've ever thought it through to this extent. But there are only two worldviews possible. The worldview is nothing other than how do you view the world. Not only at large, but your own private world. Things are happening. The one worldview is divine design that says, I may not understand a lot of what's happening, why it's happening or whatever, but God is sovereign. God is master of everything. He is working out his purposes. In the end, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. The ones I love who are trusting him, they're going to be okay. Or the other worldview is by default. In other words, Things are just going to happen by chance. Now, if that's what you really believe, I'm saying to you, I perfectly understand why you're almost paralyzed with fear. Because it says, our world's out of control. All kinds of bad things are happening, going to happen. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? Scary? You better be scary. But if you believe in divine design, that God's in control. It doesn't mean you have a smirky smile on your face all the time. It doesn't mean that it's easy. Be one of the Christians over in Egypt who just had their churches burned this last weekend. I think it was 20 or 50 or whatever. And a little 12-year-old Christian girl coming back from a Bible study shot to death. Uh, No, God says in this, or Jesus said, In this world, you will have trouble. It's not easy street. But what else did he say? But fear not, right? Fear not. Why? Because he's overcome the world. And the Apostle Paul tells us, if Christ is in us, we are what? In Christ. We are overcomers. Quickly, let me share, because I think it just reinforces Another little quote, this time from John Ortberg. I love it. It's short. It says, on the third day, bad news lost for all time. The third day, of course, is Easter. Bad news lost for all time. Folks, 
It may not feel like it at times. I'm not trying to minimize. I'm not trying to trivialize as hard of a life as some of you are having. And I know a few of you in some of the situations and what you're dealing with. But I'm here to tell you, if you are a true believer, if you know for certain that God is sovereign, you are on the winning side. You are on the winning side. There should be no despair. We may cry out to God to help us and touch us, but there should be no despair because we're the only one that have a basis for hope, eternal hope. Amen? Because God is sovereign. He's an awesome God. And if we keep that in mind, we'll begin to see our life situation from a whole different perspective. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and help us close by... Singing a a praise chorus, I love it. Uh, You may or may not be familiar with it. Talks about our God is an awesome God. And if you're struggling this morning, I don't need to know what it is you're struggling with. But I do know that the Bible talks about confessing with our mouth. In other words, if we'll say or sing a truth and claim it, you'll begin to make a difference in our life. So as you join me, if you would, by standing and singing... Keep in mind, our God is an awesome God. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's working out his purposes. You're going to be okay. Remember as kids, when we got a little mouthy and we'd say, my dad can beat up your dad? Well, our God, our Father, is a God of wisdom and power and love. He can handle anything in your life or my life. Will you just trust him today? And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in the joy and confidence and security of him.